I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels where guests can expect a relaxed, warm, and welcoming atmosphere. You can get that from this podcast too, in fact. An exceptional experience awaits at the resident's city centre locations and from this Whitehall Sources podcast, which starts now. Nurses going on strike is a badge of shame for this government. If he thinks it's right that pay demands of 19% are met, then he should say so. What's weak, Mr Speaker, is he's not strong enough to stand up to the union. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald with Kirsty Buchanan, a former advisor to Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State for Justice, and Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. And this week, we announce a lineup change. Who will be joining us for Chapter 2 of Whitehall Sources? Stay with us, we'll bring you the latest. Also on the podcast today, strikes and immigration. That's what we're focusing on. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for finding us. Follow this podcast, subscribe to it. We've got lots to come over Christmas as well. Lots of fun, actually, to be had over the next few weeks. So make sure you're followed and subscribed. Find us on social media as well. Search Whitehall Sources. We're on Instagram, on Twitter, and on TikTok. You can get extra clips there. You can get in touch as well. And if you would like to email, we'd love to hear from you before Christmas, actually. Say hello before the festivities kick in. You can email hello at whitehallsources.com. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. It is Thursday the 15th of December. It's our penultimate episode actually before a sort of slight break for Christmas. You'll still get episodes of Whitehall Sources, fear not, uh, but we're going to put our feet up for a couple of weeks and enjoy lots of Baileys, red wine, pigs in blankets. I mean, you name it, festive feelings are upon us. Hello, Kirsty. Hello. Are you well? How are you feeling yes, festive? As an act of defiance, I've put the heating on today, which is... <laughs> Which is why I'm in a I'm in a shirt at the moment um, because I've got fed up of walking around my own house in a jumper and a woolly hat. <laughs> and I thought I love that in like 21st century Britain, an act of defiance is turning the heating on for a couple of hours. But yeah, so I'm feeling quite warm and toasty at the moment. <laughs> well, that's right? good. I've recovered from the death flu, so that's a real treat for me. Um, also on the podcast today, we'll be talking strikes and we'll be talking immigration, but. We must enter the new chapter of Whitehall Sources together, first of all, and it wouldn't be like me to make something overdramatic now, would it? It's been a strong start to Whitehall Sources, as you know. Some of you have been here from the start, which is wonderful. Kirsty, an OG. Listeners, OGs among you, thank you for being here from the start. We are recording episode 14 today. And it is time for Whitehall Sources to enter a brand new phase. It's bye-bye Boris and Oscar. Thank you, Oscar. We did a proper thank you to him last week, so it's fine. We can just move on. 
and it's time to welcome a new member of the Whitehall Sources team. Hello, Frankie Leach. All right. <laughs> hey, that was good, wasn't it? How are you? I tried not to laugh throughout that. I you did like, very oh, well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. So Frankie's been on an episode with us before. She used to advise Jeremy Corbyn, as you know, um, and she has taken the plunge to join us, well, as frequently as possible. Obviously, sometimes life gets in the way. But Frankie, welcome to the team. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're big fans of your work. Um, oh. And your stories about Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> do you want to do the chant and the song about him now? Or, or will we do that another time? Um, do you know what? So I, th I think I can't really do it justice. <laughs> um, maybe we could do a little jingle. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. What is nice, as you'll have heard a couple of weeks ago when we had Frankie on, is that actually I think the two of you were probably in office at the same time, as it were, mm -hmm. I think, actually. And there was quite a lot of, quite a bit of overlap, actually. So it's quite nice to reflect either side of the hall, as it were. How does it work in, in terms of, like, geography? So obviously, Kirsty, you were number 10. So then, Frankie, where were you based? How does all of that work? So I was in the Houses of Parliament in what is affectionately termed as Lotto, um, but it's actually the office of the leader of the opposition. And it's basically in Portcullis House, and it's... If you walk along the Thames, basically, and you're walking past Westminster Tube Station, if you look up to the left, there's that big kind of like white row of windows and doors and a little balcony door. That is the leader of the opposition's office. So basically, that's where your leader of the opposition is and then their whole team. And then usually next to it is the Shadow Chancellor's office as well. And it's that corridor, basically. If you're coming onto that corridor, you're doing important business. <laughs> Have you ever been in there, Kirsty? actually but in my journo days I, I, I went in a few times to to do some interviews i mean occasionally the opposing camps would bump into each other on the kind of westminster drinking circuit <laughs> i can remember one particularly grit my teeth evening where a 20 <clears throat> something member of jeremy corbyn's team gave me comms advice thanks for that oh. just to be clear that wasn't me no no and uh, shortly before uh, everyone got so drunk that he brought over a table full of of you know pints uh, and crashed to the floor um so there you go so i declined his kind comms advice on the grounds of the fact that if he couldn't remember it in the morning i certainly didn't want to yeah exactly do you think fondly of your time in the in the leader of the opposition's office frankie yeah, I do. I often think about it, actually, because what happened with 2019, I don't know if you feel the same, Kirsty, is that because, you know, the election was such a big defeat for us, it was obviously quite dramatic. I stayed on until April to kind of do the caretaker bit of work when lots of people were leaving. Um, so that was always quite a weird time for me. I ended up sort of acting up into the head of events role and managing essentially the farewell tour which was very depressing, but it was good fun. But then obviously COVID happened. So we didn't really get that time to sort of like collectively mourn. Like usually what happens when you leave an administration, certainly for the staff, you kind of get together, you probably have a bit of a drink and a chat and you kind of like grieve. It's a bit like a funeral, but because of COVID, you know, we never really got that time. And then it was about a year before I ever started to really process what had gone on and then obviously it's quite a difficult job market to come into as well so I don't know if you feel the same Kirsty but it was a, it was a kind of a weird period. I think um, one of the things that I wish I had done differently when I left is I wish I'd taken time to decompress it's such an all-consuming job you are so close to burnout without realizing at the time that you leave and look everybody's got you know rent or mortgages and you know in, in my case kids to incessantly feed um you know and i and i didn't feel that i could have taken that time i was worried about you know uh, falling out of the jobs market but i wish i had mm. for my mental well-being as much as anything else it is you know it is a i mean look it was literally the best of times i had it was such a privilege to work at number 10 the team were so fantastic so talented we all got on enormously well uh, we all still talk and we meet up from time to time. But yeah, I wish I'd taken some time out. Yeah, totally fair. I do get that, actually. I think sometimes it can be such a whirlwind that you just kind of bounce around from one thing to the next. And then it's only ages after that you're like, oh, my goodness, what, what was that all about? Um, 
Interesting. Really interesting. Well, that's the sort of insight that you get on Whitehall sources. And we have only just begun for the next chapter with Kirsty and Frankie, which is wonderful. Thanks, as always, for being there. Make sure you follow the podcast and subscribe to it. Uh, we will have episodes dropping every single week, even through Christmas as well. So if you want a little bit of respite, uh, we'll be doing some sort of highlights things. We'll be telling you even more stories from behind the doors of the Leader of the Opposition's uh, office and at number 10 as well. And of course, you can email anytime if you'd like to wish us a Merry Christmas. Feel free. Uh, the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. So today then, we want to look at the two big issues of the week, as we regularly do, uh, and get some insight and, and get some understanding of what is shaping the stories, really, of both immigration and strikes. We spoke a lot about strikes last week, Kirsty, you and I, but it feels pertinent probably to kind of pick up where we left off in a way, because as we speak, nurses are on strike, which is astonishing for any number of reasons. Your assessment of how we got to this point that nurses are on strike and whether this should have been avoided. One of the things that I do feel quite strongly, one of the things that it's difficult to forgive the Conservative Party for is a summer of fighting like ferrets in a sack. Uh, as opposed to actually governing the country as it headed towards what was always going to be an incredibly difficult winter. One of the things you hear Pat Cullen say over and over again, who's the uh, the head of the RCN, the Royal College of Nurses, is that, that it shouldn't have come to this in the first place. They asked again and again and again to talk to the government to see if they could resolve this before the RCN actually had to change its constitution to be able to strike for the first time in its 106-year history. So this wasn't something that happened, like, last week. This has been coming down the pike all year. And the Conservatives were too busy with their circular firing squad to lift their heads up enough to see and resolve. Now, obviously, we have a new government, and the Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, has met. In fact, I think he met Pat Cullen this week. It broke up pretty quickly and pretty acrimoniously because... Ultimately, in terms of pay, I mean, there, is, there are separate issues about, you know, working terms where both sides think there might be a deal to be done. But the central demand of the RCN at the moment is for a 19% pay rise, what they call inflation plus five. The uh, response from the government is that in current climate, this is simply not affordable. That is a view, I have to say, that is shared by the shadow health secretary where streeting. And then actually there's an independent pay review body and they sit, if you like, behind this, this line at the moment. Well, you know, we've got an independent pay review body. A bit of me wants to caution, look, you know, the unions wanted an independent pay review in the first place to take the politics out of setting pay. Uh, so I think there is an inherent difficulty with, with arguing against it when, when it when it doesn't go your way. On the other hand, I don't think public attitudes and public sympathy would agree with anything other than the pay offer that is that is on the table for nurses isn't enough for the work they do, for the importance that they hold in our society. And I think it is possible for the government to carve off and make a separate argument about the, the pay for nurses than there is for the wider public sector. I, I think the government has got caught in a kind of concern, if you like, and, and, and I get it, that, that actually if they made a separate case for the RCN... It would open the floodgates for the other public sector pay demands that are being made from border force and rail workers and what have you. And in essence, that it would become like a thin end of the wedge argument and that actually you cannot meet inflation busting pay demands across the piece at the moment because we can't afford it in the current economic climate and because it would fuel inflation and it would make the recession deeper and longer, which would make everything feel worse for all of us. Mm. It is a complicated and complex situation in which I, th I think that, you know, there should be understanding and respect on both sides. And, you know, these are nurses. I don't think anybody, if you asked on an individual basis, would say that, that they don't deserve more than, than what's on the table at the moment. Of course they do. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think the the kind of messaging from the nurses, I think, is quite powerful. So just looking at a picture in the Times today, uh, of the of the of the banners that they're holding up and the posters and things. Uh, I'm a nurse. Get me out of here with a picture of Matt Hancock dressed in his I'm a celebrity gear. Um, another one. A nurse is for life, not just for COVID. Um, and I think that what what Kirsty was saying there about uh, I suppose differentiating the strikes actually, Frankie, is perhaps interesting because we can, we we do we lump them all in. You know, all these strikes are happening. It's on the rails. It's in the NHS. It's postal workers. It's whatever. 
but actually the public probably views them more individually. Is that something that actually needs to be considered more in terms of approach to negotiation? I don't necessarily agree with the idea that the public views them in isolation. I think that probably before this year, they would have viewed them in isolation because we haven't seen the level of industrial action combined at the same time like we are now for a really, really long time. So I think probably what's happening is that public opinion on industrial action is changing. And I'd be interested to see some polling, because if you think about the way the government has attempted to tackle this industrial action, what it's done is try and segment it. They're trying to look at these cases in isolation. And a lot of the government comms that's coming out is about looking at the pressure points of suggesting that like, you know, these union barons, not that they've used the terminology, but it's certainly kind of straying into that territory, are trying to hold the government to ransom over things that the public, you know, can't possibly afford. And I think that strategy has failed because if you listen to what the Vox Pops of the public are saying when we talk about these strikes, I listened to one on Radio 4 this morning on the Today programme, which is a woman talking about her husband who had blood cancer and he's missing his treatments because the nurses are on strike and his treatment was not deemed as emergency treatment that had to go ahead regardless of the fact that they were striking. I think the nurses are running on what's called Christmas hours at the moment. So there is staffing still on the wards, but it's for those emergency procedures like things like kidney dialysis. And it was interesting because she went on and on about how terrible it was for her husband and how she wished that that emergency stuff covered his treatment, but she didn't condemn the strikes. At the end, she said, I understand why they're doing it. And I think we hear that about the rail strikes as well. So I think the government have hedged their bets wrongly on this, which is essentially that they wanted the public to come out and condemn in isolation all of these individual strikes. But I think people are looking at this as kind of a homogenous thing. And what they're looking at is the fact that across the public sector, people are unhappy with their terms and conditions. They're unhappy with their pay. And although the strikes are getting on their nerves and are making their lives difficult, there isn't that widespread condemn, uh, condemnation that I think the government was really relying on. And that puts them in a very tricky position. I think there's um, uh, there's an underlying issue here where I where I kind of disagree about whether the public make a different a differentiation between the rail strikes and the NHS, um, and, and actually one is polling. Um, I mean, there is a poll in my old newspaper, the Daily Express today, which says that you know, twice as many people support the nurses' strike as are opposed to it. That is not the same with the rail strike. It's very much kind of a third and a third and a third, if you like. And it's, it's, it's remained that way for almost all of the rail strike, although the polls are hardening against the rail strike uh, over the Christmas strikes from, from Mick Lynch, which I think was a misstep from him. So I think there is there is that differentiation. But what it flags up for me under that sits underneath this is a kind of supply and demand issue. I think the issue that, that we have with the NHS is very different to the rail strikes. The rail strikes are born out of the fact that actually more and more people aren't using the rail service. 40%, there's been a 40% drop in commuters, you know, and that post-pandemic shift to working from home is a permanent shift. Most people will not do the whole five day into town schlep anymore. That has caused a you know a significant two billion pound drop in revenue, which is forcing a, a need for reform. You know, twenty percent of all rail passengers will never go back to using the rail and and we're moving more towards an increase in kind of leisure rail travel and a, and a permanent decline in day-to-day, peak-time commuter use. So there is a driving need for reform because of a declining demand. There is a almost, oddly, the sort of obverse, if you like, in the NHS, but still a, a huge need for reform. There was a report out from the IFS this week, and it said that actually, under the Conservatives in sort of post-pandemic, there are more staff, there are more doctors, there are more nurses, there is more money in the NHS, but there are more patients still on the wards. Now, that the short-form reason for that is some is because, you know, beds are still being taken up by COVID patients. And it's weird because we keep on forgetting that COVID is still a very real drain on, on the NHS. Uh, but it's also because of bed blocking. We've got, you know, a lot of elderly patients that should be being released into intermediate care that can't because there aren't those kind of intermediate beds available. And we saw all that row about you know national insurance contributions, which were originally designed to be for overhauling social care, and then got again funneled into the NHS. And whoever thinks that you would ever, once you've taken that money and diverted it into the NHS, 
good luck to any government that tries to divert it back in again. And we, I mean, all my life we've, you know, we talk about bed blocking, we talk about making the NHS and the social care system one and the same because of the impact of one on the other. And yet it hasn't happened. And so for me, I think the NHS is a different problem because there's there's an increased demand, there's an increase in pressure you know, we're going to have a doubling of, of, of people over the age of 80 by the 2030s, all of whom will have chronic health conditions. You know, medical equipment and our medical treatment is more and more expensive. So I think both are, need, are in need of reform for very different reasons. And for me, therefore, I think the public can see that the issue for rail workers is a different one. You know, they mm. need to accept that if they're not careful, their entire industry will be in the realms of managed decline whereas for, for nurses actually they are not only you know one of our most valuable assets as a nation but they're going the demands and the needs you know for looking after our nurses are going to become ever greater there you go <laughs> i unmuted sorry just a caveat i'm going to give a really serious point here but my slight problem is that i've got a nutcase cat who <laughs> He's trying to break out, so I keep muting myself because he's meowing desperately from the other room to be let loose to be. Is, is, Ma- is Max not agreeing with what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, Max is a good trade unionist, so I'm <laughs> great points he's been making, which is that I, you know, I don't agree, and I'll give you a reason why. And it's not just because I'm coming at it from a left wing ideology, but the the issue I have is that a lot of what we talk about when it comes to the rail strikes is government mismanagement. And my bottom line, and this is, I suppose, why I'm left wing, is that I don't believe that the working class, i.e. the workers on that railway, should bear the brunt of that mismanagement. Now, I agree. Do we think that modernisation is important on a 21st century public transport system? Yeah, of course it is. But what I don't believe in is the idea that, for example, if you want to bring in things like driverless trains, um, there's any suggestion from the government that if they bring in these driverless trains, that there's going to be a just transition for those train drivers to be put in an equally good job. And we've seen this when it came to Thatcher and how she tried to, you know, modernise the coal mines. What it resulted in was the mass unemployment of essentially most of the working class outside of London. And that decline and that detriment to those working class communities has never ended. I mean, if you look at what happened to those former mining communities and where they're at now with things like social deprivation, whether it's unemployment, social issues, drug use, I mean, you can directly contribute that to the essentially economic, you know, devastation that was caused by that Tory government. So I'm not surprised that when we talk about modernisation in these historic industries where working class people work in and use, the RMT are terrified about what that would result in and they're fighting for their lives. And I have no issue with that. And the important thing to remember is as well, you know, driverless trains, what they result in is this, the thing that the RMT says is a red line for them. It's not just about pay, it's keeping the guard on the train. Now, what we've seen is essentially the asset stripping of Britain's railways since they were privatised over many years. And this guard on the train, essentially, it's a job, right? It's people who go up and down the train and keep you know, passengers safe, they're there if you've got inquiries. And I think what's often missed out in this conversation is like, you know, for the example, the safety of women and girls, if you travel late at night on the train, I feel quite frightened if, you know, people have been drinking, especially around Christmas time, if there isn't a member of staff on that train and what the RMT have said, look, it's not just about saving our jobs. This is about keeping the public safe. And again, you know, when we talk about the government mismanagement of public services, my issue is that the government are not looking introspectively and saying, look, we've mishandled this for a really long time. So we're going to come to the table with the RMT and hash out a plan that protects jobs modernises the railway and does not put public safety at risk. That is what the RMT are asking for. The government is not doing that. So the problem is, is that we get this impression that the RMT is this union run by this Baron Mick Lynch who doesn't really care about jobs in the railway. What he cares about is smashing the government. If you listen to him in interviews, he wants to work constructively with the government. They keep a keen eye on what is happening politically. But what they're not willing to do is compromise on things that they see as red lines, which is essentially the passenger safety. They don't want their members to lose out on jobs. And they don't want to see the modernisation that we saw under Thatcher with the coal mines. Yeah, but... but they have a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies for two years. But what's uh, two years? Half of uh, 
Well, it, for highly skilled workers in the rail service, it, you know, it's everything. You know, there are there are plenty of rail jobs. It is a growing market, if you like. We've got HS2 coming along. We've got Trans Pennine Electrification. You know, there are there are there are more jobs to be had. So we've got we've got no compulsory redundancies for two years. Half of the network already runs on driverless trains. I myself, I'm I'm a Southern Rail user. I have had this horrific experience myself because you know the RMT and SF went out on strike on Southern in, uh, I think, 20, uh, let's get this right, so 2017, 2018, over this issue of driverless trains. I mean, people lost their jobs because they couldn't get into work. At the time, I worked at number 10, and the only way I could not lose my job myself was to, was to stay up in town, uh, you know, for the week. And so, you know, thanks to my mum, who stayed in my house and looked after my kids... And I, you know, lived with Joan and Sylvester in a in a in a in a single bedroom three nights a week because it's just there was no way I could get in. But my point is, it's a driverless train. I do not feel less safe because of it. And fifty five percent, I think, of all passengers now travel on driverless trains. Dublin's light railway is an automated train system that's been running since nineteen eighty seven, and millions of people use it without, uh, you know, without any sort of safety concerns at all. So. I hear what you're saying, but I, this is a separate case. This is a need for uh, an acceptance of, of an industry that is going through, you know, a permanent and seismic shift in passenger use, which requires actions to, to, to meet that. Otherwise, it will end up in managed decline. This isn't forcing it into managed decline. It's designed to save it. And we haven't had privatisation on, on, you know, in any franchise sense. Uh, and I, I dare to use the word franchise. I don't want to really open that door. Yeah. But um, you know, we haven't had privatisation since before COVID. All all the services now are on you know national rail contracts. They are in fact, in essence, sort of contracted to the government. But that so, is a problem in itself, because oh, I totally agree with you. There is an absolute problem in its own right. I mean, a company like Avanti is not serving the public in any way, shape, or form. I mean, my parents live in Manchester. And it is a travesty what Avanti has done to that service. And that's ASF and RMT members who are on those trains. And what they've said is the government is essentially propping up a franchise, as we said, Avanti, uh, to privatise that railway that doesn't care about providing a good service to the public. And it's the RMT and Avanti that are saying that. They're not saying, you know, just my job quality has really dropped here. What they're saying is they're not providing a proper railway. And I just think it's really important when we talk about this. And this is an ideological difference here. We're never going to agree, which is my position is that jobs should not suffer for modernization. A just transition is important. It's the same argument I have about climate change, which is for people who work on the North Sea, you know, oil drill fields, they should be moved over with a government-backed program to retrain into green energy jobs. And, you know, it's not for me to determine for the RMT or ASLIF where those train drivers or train operators or train staff should go, but I don't agree that they should lose out on their jobs because the government wants to manage decline this railway. But, but well, the, the government is trying to stop, prevent decline on the railway to stop it from becoming a sort of permanent crisis. And I think my, my own personal view is two years of no compulsory redundancies and an offer of retraining is uh, a just transition for something that is going to happen. It's not being driven by the government, it's designed to prevent the system from from becoming one of permanent decline. And the more rail strikes there are, the more it puts passengers off using it, You know, the more it gets caught in this death spiral. I just simply don't see how, faced with the backdrop that we've got, that going on you know, a series of 48-hour strikes does, A, the rail workers any good because they're missing out on pay, does key workers no good. The people that are hit hardest by rail strikes are people that are reliant on the service, which are you know low-income workers and, and key workers. Not me. I can sit at home and work from home all week. Thanks very much. You saved me a, a bunch of money on my train ticket. But, you know, but, but it doesn't do the rail workers a good... And it doesn't do... The, it costs the industry a lot of money, industry money that, that should be being used for a, a good and fair pay settlement. And it's and it turns off people from using from using the network even more. Crucially, if I can ask you to put your sort of behind-the-scenes heads on, how do we assess, I suppose, a couple of things. One, the appetite for resolution to bring these strikes to an end in number 10, and indeed what the opposition's role in this is. One thing that strikes me when we interview Labour politicians on Times Radio is that they are 
they are eager for uh, a resolution. They have a sort of very, you know, quite clear line in terms of we support the right to strike, but we always want to avert strikes wherever possible. I think that's a fair sort of summary. I'm trying to understand if they should actually have a role. The Labour Party is the party of trade unions. But to step back from it and simply comment on it, is that is that problematic? Should yeah, the but, Labour Party Callum, be in there? Callum, they do have a role. It's to tippy-toe along the fence that they're trying to balance <laughs> on, right? <laughs> what, what, do you think, what do you think, Frankie? Because with ongoing disputes, ongoing strikes, whether it's on the rails, the unprecedented nurses strike today, etc., etc., actually, is there not a role for a party that is so in tune, aligned with trade unions to actually step in and do something i suppose my initial response to that is is keir starmer's labor party in tune good with question i mean i would argue that it's not and it hasn't been for a number of years and that was a conscious decision you know essentially keir starmer has uncoupled the labor party from the trade unions and that's what you know people have been complaining about um for so long about this i think that you know there is clearly a tension within Keir Starmer's Labour Party. I mean, their whole thing is they're the party of business, right? And, you know, let's put SMEs aside. But when we talk about big business, it's not really an idea that we would be thinking that would be a harmonious relationship with trade unions. I mean, often they rub along, but at times like this where you're at crisis point between the priorities of big business and even government to an extent and trade unions, I think it's clear that Keir Starmer is shown where he sits and that is on the side of big business so now the labor party's got its own tension with the trade unions and when we think about the internal politics of the labor party the national executive committee as you mentioned um you know historically because of that relationship with the trade unions they have a seat at the table literally mm. to discuss and debate labor party policy and you know those representatives that come from the trade unions and these are only labor party affiliated unions so to to make a clear point the rcn and the rmt are not affiliated sure. to the labor party so don't have a seat on that table um you know for Aslef, for example they will probably f be feeling you know their noses are kind of slightly out of joint here which is essentially that they pay money to affiliate to the Labour Party in this reciprocal relationship where they are, you know, involved in the conversations about work and about business. And they would hope that the Labour Party would be in their corner defending them. Now, I'm not particularly seeing that. And I think people were really shocked in particular about, you know, West Streeting's comments about the BMA. And it's interesting to see the direction in which the Labour Party is going in, because it's my opinion that the Labour Party will win the next general election. But as Kirsty said, you know, these strikes are not just about individual issues about inflation pay rises. We're talking about industries that are, you know, really changing and post-COVID, you know, particularly for the railways, as we've discussed, you know, something's going to change. And that tension between, you know, the unions and management is going to go on for a long time. And that's going to pretty soon become the Labour Party's problem. Mm. And if they sit on the sidelines in the same way and sort of give these comments where they essentially, you know, say that they don't really support union action, but they think the government needs to put a bit more effort into sorting it, you know, soon it's going to be them that's going to need to put a bit more effort into sorting it. And I'm not confident that they're going to be able to rely on the relationships that are already quite fractitious with those trade unions to be able to get a better deal than the Conservatives are now. Mm. Am, I, am I barking up the wrong tree, Kirsty? When, when, you know, in my ideal naive little world that actually all the politicians could come together and, and not exploit in this way, but, you know, exploit their relationships, their connections get around the table, make it work, and bring the strikes to an end. Because resolution, the workers want resolution, the unions want resolution, people, customers, service users, hospital patients, whoever want resolution. I want to be able to send my Christmas presents, you know, through Royal Mail and have them delivered on time, etc. Am I, am I being silly? Uh, well, far bit for me to call you silly, Karen, but, you know, God <laughs> it's an loves an optimist. It's an open goal. <laughs> yeah, uh, God loves an optimist, right? Well, look, I mean... Uh, the Labour Party's got its own uh, considerations here. I mean, they are in large part bankrolled by the unions, although I feel if I was uh, Mick Lynch right now or a union member, I'd kind of want my money back. Um, and Rishi Sunak's, you know, got his own party considerations too. He's got to play to a, uh, you know, the Conservative membership and his own party, which have still got him on, you know, large sections of which have still got him on probation as a prime minister as it were and 
you know, he was in the Spectator doing an interview, giving it his full-on Arnold Schwarzenegger today. I am tough, you know, don't mistake politeness for weakness, etc. So uh, I think quite a lot of politics has crept into this for, 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 different, for different reasons. So, you know, it suits Keir to, to try and walk this, uh, walk this sort of thin line um, and it suits, uh, it suits Rishi Sunak to, to use it as a, as a, as a way of demonstrating his, his toughness as a prime minister to a party um, and to a country, like I say, where, you know, in terms of public polling, there's, you know, uh, considerably more divided sympathy, let's put it that way, for the rail workers than, than there is for the nurses' strike. Mm, really interesting. Well, that strikes, which are ongoing and to which I'm sure we might even return in the new year, to be honest, uh, will probably be a bit more festive next week. But um, but yeah, I imagine after the new year, we might we might still be talking about strikes. Um, this is Whitehall Sources, your favourite politics podcast. Make sure you're following and subscribing so you never miss an episode again. And by the way, I can confirm that we are pulling together quite a special Christmas treat for you. And I can say that because... I'm going to say this in a coded way. One of our favourite people has just messaged me a contribution for our festive special. So that's all I'll say. You won't want to miss that. Go on, Kirsty. What are you I was, I'm not. Don't decode I'm just, it. Don't decode it. No, I'm not going to decode it. But you know, for those that obviously can't, you know, can't see, uh, I just did a tiny like 1980s <laughs> fist bump of extreme excitement. So. So yes, it's we found a compromise. The per, our, one of the, the person in question is a very busy person, and so uh, we will. But we will feature them in a festive treat in a couple of weeks. All I will say by way of uh, of added code is: be still, my beating heart. <laughs> uh, so you want to make sure you're following the podcast and subscribe to the podcast because otherwise you might miss that. Uh, so we'll do that in a couple of weeks' time for you. Still to come on this episode. Speaking of Rishi Sunak appearing tough, we're going to talk about migration, migrants human beings who are trying to come to the UK. Stay with us for that. We are so glad to be here and we are so grateful for our wonderful sponsor. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. Their fantastic team of resident insiders are waiting for you at their ideal city centre locations in London and Liverpool. The locations are hand-picked Insiders are specifically trained to give you all the info you could possibly need for your stay, including secret tips and tricks of the local neighbourhood. They sound a bit like sources, you might say. It's magic moments galore during your stay. And by the way, TripAdvisor backs us up on this. The resident hotel Liverpool is number one. Covent Garden in London is number one. Kensington, Soho and Victoria in London are all in the top 30. Here's what Nicholas says in his review. We found our room very spacious. The Nespresso machine and mini fridge was a lifesaver, as I really need my morning coffee with real milk to get going. The staff were very friendly and helpful. Sold. Click residenthotels.com to book your stay at one of the resident hotels, making Whitehall sources possible. This is Whitehall Sources. You can email anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. And when you've got questions, maybe you want to ask Frankie a question as you welcome her to the podcast, feel free. We will put them to her when we open the door to the correspondence unit on episodes here, there and everywhere. So email anytime, hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, right, let's go on to talk about migration and Rishi Sunak's, well, it was, it was one of these moments, wasn't it, this week, a sort of set piece thing um, where he kind of did a sort of big moment of here's some new policy. Uh, how do we all feel about this? Now, I, I just want to preface this as well by saying, as we record this on Thursday, that on Monday, the 19th of December, we will get the High Court ruling on the Rwanda um, policy, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the idea of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, uh, which has been held up in the courts for the last couple of months, such to, to the point that nobody has actually been on a plane to Rwanda at this stage because there's been uh, uh, so many challenges to it. So that that's kind of a context for this to bear in mind as we discuss what Rishi Sunak said this week. Um, and I suppose, let's start with you, Frankie, on this. Uh, where is Rishi Sunak positioning himself on migration as far as you're concerned? Look, I mean, seeing as we're doing migration, I actually think it's really important just to say that, as we record, there is still a search and rescue operation happening in the channel. 
um, to find migrants who sadly quite a few drowned in the channel in the last 48 hours. The story was broken by the iPaper as well this morning on the front page um, that those migrants actually called the Coast Guard to say that they were drowning. And in a very upsetting clip as well, apparently you can hear um, the sound of children crying in the background. And I just think that, I mean, it might be my bleeding heart here, but I often feel that when we talk about migration and policy and what Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer or anyone else has to say, that we just kind of don't talk about how upsetting and sad that is, and the fact that these are people, and it doesn't matter kind of where they come from or what they're running away from or whether they're economic migrants or whether they're asylum seekers fleeing the most unimaginable war. You know, nobody should be dying in search of a better life, and that, for me, is, is a red line. So whenever I hear politicians kind of tiptoeing around that idea about, you know, what is acceptable to be able to look at a level of suffering from somebody and think that their amount of suffering is just enough to be able to allow them to come to the UK. For me, that is a fundamental misstep in any kind of policy when we talk about immigration. And I get that for the UK, it's been a problem for a very, very long time. But I'm sad to hear that, you know, Rishi Sunak, I get that his politics are not the same as mine when it comes to migration, but I just don't think we do enough to say that this is a really terrible situation and the only thing i would say about what i heard about rishi sunak and in you know light of what's going to happen with the rwanda policy as well is that the difficulty that we have with you know channel crossings is that if we don't have safe and legal routes um that are outside of the schemes that are available for ukrainian asylum seekers and syrian asylum seekers if those schemes aren't available for people to be able to come to the uk to even have the opportunity to claim asylum channel crossings will continue. And if government policy is to make channel crossings more difficult, what will happen is that people will just die more. Because what has been clear from those immigrants is that they are not deterred by a more difficult channel crossing. They will do it anyway. And unless you acknowledge that, you are essentially saying that you recognise that by making that policy, uh, sorry, more difficult to cross the channel, you're accepting that people will just die. And, you know, fundamentally, it's not even a left or right issue for me on this one. I just don't think that's acceptable. And the problem is, is that, you know, the government, they're never going to get anywhere with the channel crossings by just saying that like, we're going to make it harder. We're going to work with the French Coast Guard to stop people from coming. They need to fundamentally look at how our immigration policy works and we need to look at how we approve asylum cases, how quickly they're approved. But also, if you open up safe and legal routes, it removes that element of death. And for me, that's kind of a red line. And it'd be interesting to hear what Kirsty thinks about that as well. But we have to provide easier schemes or at least some schemes for people to safely get to the UK to claim asylum. Just to mention, just to, before you respond to that, Kirsty, I, I should highlight some of the things that Rishi Sunak said in the comments today in terms of promises, policy, etc. Um, so, one thing, we will establish a new permanent unified small boats operational command. Um, he's trying to sort of bring together the policing of the English Channel, really, to bring together military teams, civilian teams, coordinate intelligence, interception, processing and enforcement. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, other things that you mentioned, over the coming months, thousands of Albanians will be returned home. Um, it's kind of, that's, the, the Albanian issue has been, uh, you know, it's been kind of been slightly mysterious, I suppose, why it's become such a problem for the Home Office to, to deal with in whatever way, but to deal with Albanians. Uh, in any case, they deem it a, a safe country, uh, and so there's going to be action there. We're moving up to 10,000 people out of expensive hotel accommodation into low-cost sites like disused holiday parks and former student halls. Sounds like a barrel of laughs, doesn't it? Uh, what else? Uh, early next year, we will introduce new legislation to make unambiguously clear that if you enter the UK illegally, you should not be able to remain here. And then finally, another sort of key thing, uh, we expect to abolish the backlog of initial asylum decisions by the end of next year. Uh, so there's lots of questions in all of this. Uh, there's lots of target setting. There's lots of bringing things together. Kirsty, go for it. What do you reckon? Uh, I mean, look, what's happened this week is not only heartbreaking, uh, I'm afraid it mirrors what happened roughly this time last year when there was a, another devastating loss of life as a small boat collapsed and 27 people drowned. Uh, and at the time, uh, there were similar promises made about 
you know, overhauling policy and overhauling the asylum system and cutting down on the backlog, etc. Uh, I mean, I, we're in danger of, of walking into an outbreak of consensus here. I think, uh, I think a number of things about this. I think Frankie is a hundred percent right. We have a number of safe and legal route schemes. We have Afghanistan, Ukraine, Hong Kong, uh, Syria. Uh, I think there are not enough. Is my honest assessment of this. Uh, and until you have an extension of safe and legal routes, people will continue. Uh, to make these devastating, dangerous crossings and, and risk their lives to get to this country. And I think I also agree that, you know, it, re it really doesn't help with the situation where we're talking about something as complicated and complex as this to make it a left-right issue. Whether you're coming here as a economic migrant or coming here as a asylum seeker, the fact that you are prepared to put your lives at risk to get here is what we should never lose sight of here and what what is the best policy to stop that from happening the rest of it right now for me is almost kind of immaterial what is the best way of stopping people from overloading boats and going across the channel in sub-zero temperatures mm. to get to this country regardless of why they're trying to come now the government would say that you know what they're trying to do at the moment is designed precisely to break that model, that model of criminal activity that sees people take money to overload, you know, fragile, small, unsuitable boats and take people across in all weathers unless it's too windy. Every other, you know, if you fall into the channel now, you will freeze to death. Uh, but because it's not windy, the boats will continue to cross and they cross in their hundreds, their hundreds every day. So you've got to break that model. The question is simply, is the, is, the, is the system and the solutions that have been put in place the right way to do that? Well, for me, one of the big problems of this is the Rwandan policy, not from a moral perspective or a values perspective, but because it is held up in the courts, we will get a high court ruling. It seems inconceivable to me that no matter which way that goes, either side will appeal that and it will end up pootling its way all the way up to the to the European Court in Strasbourg. So that, as a policy, you almost want to put on a shelf, regardless of its of its merits or demerits, because... You know, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere mm. in a hurry. And then we're talking about Conservatives are saying, oh, well, you know, it just means that we need to, to, you know, we need to use this as an example to derogate from the ECHR and let's put legislation in to do that. And we're all expecting this big immigration bill. Well, OK, fine. You know, we've got a problem now. And actually, what happened with that tragedy last November was there was a promise to redouble on, on beach patrols and work with the French government. For me right now, you've got you've got a long-term problem, a medium-term problem, and an immediate problem. The immediate problem is those boats are still coming. And a sometime, maybe never policy threat of going to Rwanda is, is not stopping them. You know, if you are spending, I was listening to a, an interview a few days ago with the Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper. The amount of money we're spending at the moment on, on uh, asylum seekers being put in hotels is something, depending on which paper you read, between five and seven million pounds a day. That's two billion, upwards of two billion pounds a year. You know, if you're spending that sort of money on housing people, yes, you absolutely need to double your amount of uh, asylum officers so you can reduce the uh, horrendous backlog we've got in the system but actually rather than shoving people in ponds in holiday camps to cut the cost use you know invest to save if you like you know use some of the money that you are spending or would be spending on on hotel accommodation to flood the french you know beaches with 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 french patrols and british patrols now you know whether we pay for them you know, people take umbrage about how much more money do we need to give the French. I don't care. You know, this is this is a human tragedy. It's an economic disaster. And it, and none of this makes sense to me. Mm. Stop footling down the courts for your solution right now. You know, use your money to up your patrols and stop those boats from coming. That is, as far as I can see, two things are the quickest and easiest ways of doing that. One is more safe and legal routes and another is increased beach patrols. I have something actually that I just want to touch on there, um, which is that when we talk about, you know, the policy of like, how do we stop people from risking their lives, you know, to migrate? And, you know, what else has happened this year in international politics that might have contributed slightly to this? You know, we've massively cut our aid budget. 
And this is about politics, which is essentially that if we look at what's happening, for example, in East Africa, there's a massive famine happening. And what tends to happen with famine is aside from the fact that lots of people die, mainly children, women, elderly people, very vulnerable people, and people migrate. Because what happens is that if you survive the initial famine, what tends to happen is that if you work in agriculture, for example, either you have animals or you farm food, um, what happens with a famine and a drought is that you can't do that anymore. So you move to find work. Now, if you look at asylum-seeking and refugee statistics, what usually happens is, is when people flee their country of origin, they often just go to a country next door and they stay there. So the statistics about where people go to for those who reach Europe and by default the UK, it's actually very small numbers. I mean, it's a lot when we look at, you know, the population of the UK, but it's not in terms of how many people actually attempt to come here. We've got a PR, I think, issue here, which is that people in the UK think that we have massive numbers of migrants and asylum seekers trying to get here. But actually, it's not true when you look at countries like Germany or France, for example. But in terms of the fact that we've cut our aid budget, a large amount of our aid budget would have gone to tackling things like the East Africa famine crisis. Now, when that's not tackled and you don't have that international development aid money and you don't use your international development aid money to tackle things like global poverty, you know, the outcome of that is that people migrate and they go to countries where they feel like they're probably going to have a better life. And I don't agree with the idea that we should segment out, you know, people who are fleeing death from people who are fleeing absolute poverty. Because, you know, I work in international development and let me tell you, absolute poverty is probably, you know, the same risks of death because you're not going to have proper healthcare, you're not going to be able to bring your children up properly and you're not going to have any kind of money to be able to have a decent quality of life. So it's likely that you'll try and move somewhere to have a better case of life. So this is what we always miss out when we talk about migration, which is that Britain, you know, we have this global Britain thing that David Cameron pioneered, which is about our role on the global stage and using international development money to help other countries develop. So we don't have issues like a lot of migration. You know, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson cut that international development aid money. And, you know, it's a response that people are then fleeing the conflicts that we're now saying we don't want to help support to make better. Mm. Oh, I'm not I'm not going to go toe to toe with someone that works on on uh, works on international uh, aid for a living. Um, although just to stress that we haven't cut the international aid, aid budget to nothing and we are still a major contributor to international aid. But it does flag for me, Frankie, another issue which isn't one of now, but it is one that, that all politicians of all parties should be thinking about right now, which is about uh, uh, climate action. Mm. Uh, you know, and if one of the one of the many important components, and I don't think you know enough people have woken up to the issue about where climate action and immigration intersect. Entirely. And and over the you know and not you know in the far flung future, you know in the decades to come you know, 10, 20 years from now, what we will increasingly see is immigration born out of the consequences of the failure to take climate action. So in other words, mass flooding leaving and mass droughts leaving whole areas uninhabitable. And so, so actually, all of Europe is going to have to wake up to a completely, you know, long-term seismic uh, shift in how it treats immigration because it's going to become an ever-pressing problem not for my generation, but certainly for the generation below and the generation below that, you will have mass migration caused by just whole areas, whole sections of countries becoming completely uninhabitable and, you know, and in our in our lifetimes. Yeah, yeah exactly right. I couldn't have put that better. And also one of the funny things that we kind of tend to miss out when we talk about climate change is there's some very frightening statistics which say, in 50 years time, the landscape of the UK is going to massively change with climate change. So people that live in coastal areas will see coastal erosion, which will see a decrease in that land mass. So people who've got lovely, pretty cottages that have a nice sea view, they're not going to be there in 50 years time. And if they are, they're pretty close to falling in the sea in London here as well. You know, I looked at a map the other day when I got back from COP. Uh, which showed that the increase in flooding that will happen if the Thames barrier doesn't hold or we change that, um, we'll see areas of central London that are close to the Thames underwater, potentially. So when we talk about, you know, 
the climate change issue that's going to impact people in the global south, you know, I'm afraid to say that it's coming for us in the global north as well. And what we saw this year with Germany and those floods is the kind of scenes that, you know, I remember uh, when I was at primary school, you saw that terrible on Boxing Day around this time um, tsunami that happened. But all of those things contribute to developmental problems. So when we talk about government policy, if the government isn't essentially wargaming what's going to happen, not just to the global south, but to the UK as well, with an increase in climate change, you'll see an increase in famine, an increase in conflict, an increase in war, and of course, an increase in immigration. So all of those things are coming down the track. And if they're not looked at as a kind of group together and looked at in isolation, it's going to be a real problem. Mm. It would be fascinating, and maybe a white horse horse could let us know, you know, on that kind of risk rate, rating, if you like, of 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 planning, long-term planning, you know, one of the things that the pandemic threw up was was how well prepared we were for planning around pandemics. We had some sort of, we did a lot of, of gaming in the civil service around flus and flu pandemics and flu-style pandemics, but nothing that suited the, the, the novel uh, coronavirus that, 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 that hit, the, hit the world. And so actually, where are we with this sort of long term planning, the impact on this on, you know, on Europe and, and, and sort of G7 countries? I'd be I'd be fascinated to know. Yeah. And I mean, so much of UK government policy is reactive at the moment. Right. We seem to be on the back foot. We're reacting to events. But I haven't seen in a long time anything that came out of a kind of government ministry that felt like this was proactive policymaking. And actually, to be fair, international development is often a sector where a lot of proactive policy is put in place because you split it out essentially between planning for future stuff and then the humanitarian side and the humanitarian is what is reacting to emergency events but i you know i can't think of any other kind of policy that's come out that felt like it was proactive they've used data they're planning i don't kirsty i don't know if you feel the same well i mean look i mean in fairness to 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 the government and i'm not just talking about the politicians but the civil service they've got so many crises on their hands at the moment with their wedge of black swans um that uh, (laughs) we talked about this last week so a black swan event is an unprecedented kind oh, yeah, of unforeseen of event Why and, I'm, and i wondered what the collective noun was and callum looked it up and it turns out randomly it's a wedge when they're flying a wedge of swans a wedge of swans because ah. they're in we, that shape aren't they do a boris johnson <laughs> go to your fridge cut a piece of cheese have a look at a wedge there you go <laughs> the short term and by short term i mean the next 10 years, 10, 15 years, it seemed to me at the moment to be clearly dominated by the issues of of energy security and onshoring as much energy security, energy production as you can. Uh, I think that's one thing. I think that will be closely followed by food security. Uh, I think that is obviously coming up the sort of, you know, risk rating, as it were. But then, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I don't think that we, we've seen the last of sort of novel, novel viruses coming down, uh, coming down the path. Um, and I, you know, but I, uh, and so all of this pushes the whole, you know, climate action as it relates to uh, immigration patterns very far down the kind of risk rating for me. Mm. And, and that's the trouble. You know, there's always, you know, a, you know, massive pressing, you know, uh, global shifting crisis kind of right in front of your face. And uh, there's no political imperative, you know, because, you know, and it's not a, it's not a, you know, this would be the same no matter who was in power. You know, you've got to deal quite rightly with the, with, 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 with what's on your, you know, your in-tray at the time. And it just leaves all of this stuff to the, to the back foot. Like I said, you know, yeah. which takes us back to the point, of the, you know, at the beginning of this, you know, I was writing about energy crisis and potential blackouts when I was a journalist, you know, and that was, you know, more than 10 years ago now, I have been hearing about bed blocking in the NHS my entire life, you know. And and so actually, you know, these these big, you know, shifts and and demands and 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 planning and patterns and stuff, they just they don't get done because there's always a massive, massive imperative crisis. Right now it's energy and then food security. It's so interesting, actually. Go on, Frankie. I was just going to say, having spoken about all this stuff, I honestly couldn't think of anything worse than being either a spad or a uh, pad, you know, the opposite of the spad at the moment. 
because I just think it would be entirely joyless. And I'm not saying that my experience was 100% joyful. Sure. But these are hard times. And I think particularly when I think about my politics, I would have really struggled if I'd have gone into number 10. And I kind of hope I was picked to go into number 10 before they lost the election. Because it's it's you've got to weigh it all up, don't you? Like I think about, you know, I really hope that the government pays out the pay rises that the unions are asking for. I think they really deserve it. But I panic and I worry that we're not doing enough financially to tackle things like climate change. I worry that we've not got a progressive enough policy on migration. But then I think about what would happen if we approved all the asylum cases. Where would those people go and live? Because we've got a housing crisis. You know, the whole thing is completely interlinked. And I just feel like we're coming to a point in kind of British politics where the house of cards is is going to fall. And this is the worry, right, for the Labour Party is that they want to win the next general election. But what are they going to inherit? Can they fix this broken country? If I was the Tory party, I'd be wanting to get out right now. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, there are there are plenty of people within the Conservative Party that, that actually do think like that. But there is a fatalism that's crept into the party that said actually you know you be king of the ashes there kids Delva. good luck with that you deal with all of that and when you sorted that all out we'll we'll sweep back in again um and look i you know i agree with you one of the reasons i wanted to do uh white horse sources in the first place was because i wanted to kind of help you know uh convey the idea that actually almost everybody in politics you know, Labour and Conservative, Liberal Democrats, etc., SNP, they don't go into it to advance their party or their... I mean, there's some of this and some of the career stuff and all of that sort of stuff, but nobody would go through and put themselves through what they do if they don't care passionately about the world in which they live. They don't genuinely want to make it a better place. But when you are in power... You are not struck by the amount of power you have. You are only struck by how little room you have for manoeuvre. In between, I've said it before, I'll say it again until I bore everyone's senses, you know, in between, you know, the law, your stakeholders, your party concerns, the public attitudes and how far you can take the public, you know, the press, all of these things, all crushing business needs, all crush in and leave any government's room for manoeuvre you know, in a very, very small space. It comes back to our, you know, cul-de-sacs and cars and all of that um, with crunching metaphors. You know, it, it is, you know, most of the time in government, what you are looking at is picking the least worst option. Yeah. And one of the things that upsets me most about the polarising of the debate in modern politics is it creates the impression that people over here are wrong or evil or stupid or malign. Nobody is on either side of the page. Most people are just trying to do the best they can with the limited room for manoeuvre that they have. And the bigger the problems, the less room for manoeuvre you have. And that, that for me, was kind of the big imperative of why I wanted to do this, was just to take out of... Um, out of, you know, of some of the political debate that, you know, Frankie and I are on very different sides of the spectrum. You know, we're not going to see eye to eye on a lot of issues, but we can debate them with respect and tolerance for each other's views because the day that I think that I've got the claim on certainty and know everything is the day that, you know, I might as well just up stumps and, and give up because I don't know, you know, I don't claim to have the certainty and knowledge on anything and I respect other people's views because I'm not certain in mine. You know, the world is a very difficult and very complicated place and we're all just trying to do the best we can with what room for manoeuvre that we have. Government ministers are, are no different to the rest of us. Mm. Yeah. Our mission statement for, for Whitehall Sources, as defined by Kirsty and Frankie, who are here and will be here every week to discuss and to give insight and to analyse current political events and moments and policies and strategies based on their experiences as well. Um, thank you both very much. There was a, there's, a, there's a lot in there. This is, this, it's a heavy week. This is something we kind of reflected last week as well. We're midway through December and it's gloomy. Politically, it is tough out there. Strikes and cost of living crisis and war and famine and people dying trying to come to the UK in the channel. Gosh, it is, it is relentlessly grim. Um, but I should say that next week, 
we will be discussing Christmas parties in Whitehall, which I, <laughs> I am particularly excited about. So that episode will come out on the 22nd of December. And um, we're going we're gonna to take you behind the scenes, underneath the tinsel, beneath the mistletoe, uh, gathered, around, <laughs> gathered around the number 10 Christmas tree to share anecdotes of Christmas political Christmas parties. Can I also just say one thing, and I think it's important to say it. It's not to do with Christmas, but it's kind of nice. Um, I don't think I've had a time where I've done this kind of politics chat with another woman, and I just want to say that it's important to recognise that when you actually think about these kind of, like, podcasts or interviews, it's either a man and a woman or two men, and not to toot my own horn or toot Kirsty's horn... But I actually think you get a different kind of conversation when it's two women and obviously a lovely male adjudicator. Thank you. Well, I mean, I've got very little to do when you're so well informed, the two of you. That's the whole point. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very important point. Absolutely. Um, so basically what we're saying is all the other podcasts suck and Whitehall <laughs> Sources is where you should be. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you, Frankie. Thank you, Kirsty. We will be back next week with Christmas Party Vibes. It's, it, they won't be. They might be a little bit scandalous, but um, not not like Partygate. Don't we ask people to write in with their own scandalous Christmas party? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Do that now. Email us now. Hello at WhitehallSources.com. Um, what is the office goss from your office party? Email your scandalous stories if you'd like. Leave the names out. None of us is going to court for this. Uh, email hello at whitehallsources.com. And next week, we will take you behind the scenes of Whitehall's Christmas parties. Uh, we will speak to you then. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.